Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky. We're coming to you from the American Journal of Transplantation's uh, May edition of AJT Highlights. And uh, today with me, as always, is Roz Manon from the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And we have a guest, our editorial fellow, Scott Crummy from uh, Johns Hopkins Medical Institute, who's a basic scientist and helps run the HLA lab at uh, Hopkins. So today we have five papers to review. Two will be per- will be done by by Scott. Uh, the first two, the first one is genetic evaluation of living kidney donor candidates, a review and recommendations for best practices by Thomas et al., and then the second one will, is entitled Mutations in Latent Membrane Protein of Epstein-Barr Virus are Associated with Increased Risk of Post-Transplant Lymphoproliferative Disorder in Children by, by Martinez et al. Then, Roz, uh, will be reviewing two papers that deal with the kidney DRI. The first is uh, the Association of Donor Hepatitis C Virus Infection with Three-Year Kidney Transplant Outcomes in the Era of Direct-Acting Antiviral Medications by Sutcliffe et al., and then the the next one is an impact of removing race from the calculation of the kidney donor profile index by Miller et al. And then I will finish discussing a viewpoint piece entitled Time to Discard the Term Discard by uh, Hart et al. from the SRTR. So let's take it away, Scott. I'd like to welcome you to uh, begin discussing the, the first paper. Thank you. Great. Thank you. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to uh, be a part of this podcast. So the first paper I want to discuss um, is uh, first authors are Christine Thomason, Reem Galul, um, and it's part of um, a list of authors from the AST Living Donors Committee of Practice Workgroup. And the title of the paper is Genetic Evaluation of Living Kidney Donor Candidates, a Review and Recommendations for Best Practices. So the kind of central question the uh, workgroup sought to uh, investigate was how to work with the growing use of genetic testing that's available and overall for kidney disease, but specifically when uh, applied to a living donor kidney evaluation. So um, this is true for a lot of uh, aspects of medicine where we really see an explosion of uh, sequencing technology and now these um, ability to do genomic testing due to both advances in technology and decreases in cost. Um, and this has increased the number of available laboratory tests uh, using this technology uh, in a number of areas. And so for transplantation, uh, living donors uh, are increasingly evaluated using genetic testing for uh, potential or asymptomatic kidney disease. And so this has some potential advantages and disadvantages. So particularly it has the advantages of being able to identify disease before donors are symptomatic and potentially um, head off uh, negative negative outcomes, um, particularly for living donor uh, kidney transplantation. And I guess in the specific case of living donors, um, this has been the, the drive for genomic testing has been driven by the observations that there's a five to tenfold increased risk of end-stage renal disease for living donors versus healthy controls, although the authors point out that there's a lot of confounders to this type of data. Um, and as well, there are case reports of living donors uh, developing the same disease as the recipient, raising the question of should we be you know, de- uh, looking more carefully to identify genomic uh, uh, genetic diseases for, for kidney uh, failure. Again, so uh, genomic testing has been used to as a way to potentially screen, and the question is really how to do it effectively. So the authors point out very clearly that this type of testing, just in general, creates a, a number of ethical and intellectual uh, kind of medical gray areas for providers, and it's really critical to have 
quality pre and post test uh, genetic counseling, uh, either with uh, renally uh, qualified clinical counselors or clinical geneticists. So some particular problems with genomic testing um, kind of in a screening sense that they point out are what to do about variants of unknown significance, uh, what to do about or the potential for false negative um, results that could create false uh, reassurances for uh, patients and donors, um, issues uh, with life insurance, because although it's um, illegal to discriminate as far as providing medical care and insurance, there are issues with obtaining life insurance uh, with certain genetic results. And then last, the kind of bigger bucket of identifying actionable but non-kidney uh, disease relevant variants. So, um, you know, how much, uh, how far down the uh, further evaluation are, are nephrologists in the transplant center required to, to go uh, ethically. So, the authors have, I believe it's uh, table one, they make very clear guidelines of which living donors should be considered for genetic testing. So, the first, uh, and these really center on kind of, I guess, strong uh, clinical histories of either potential or known uh, genetic kidney disease. So point one is donors with a first degree relative um, with a family history of known genetic kidney disease. The second group are donors with a history of suspected genetic kidney disease in a first degree relative. The third, um, a little more ambiguous, are donors with a family history of kidney disease of unknown etiology in a first degree relative or multiple second degree relatives. And then the fourth are in the case of um, potential X-linked disease. So donors with a family history of possible X-linked genetic disease in one uh, second-degree male relative. So I think this is a good kind of concise summary of uh, outlining what a strong family history would look like. Um, and then as far as testing, uh, they go on to outline two main approaches that um, are currently taken to approach testing of living donors. So the first one, which uh, the authors um, explicitly favor um, for a number of reasons, is to focus on testing the affected uh, family member first. Um, so this is often the transplant candidate. Um, and then kind of take that information, kind of a more broad screening approach to provide a more focused uh, genetic testing algorithm to the potential living donor. And so um, the main advantages to this would be kind of as I alluded to, that there is more less potential for, you know, kind of identifying things that you don't know what to do with. So if you find in a symptomatic patient, you know, the genetic basis of disease, it's a lot easier to take a limited panel um, to the living donor and then, you know, evaluate from there. Uh, the second approach is a kind of a true, um, more unbiased screening approach in uh, the potential donor first. So the way they say it is to um, test the donor uh, directly first with a full genomic panel um, again, kind of taking the broadest view that you could you know, identify things that maybe would be pre-symptomatic um, and not being a lot less um, tethered to what the other results would be for particularly for the, the patient. And so, again, this would provide a lot more information, but the negatives are, um, as they point out, kind of numerous. So there would be a lot more expense potentially and a greater, much greater potential of identifying, again, variants of unknown significance or potentially um, things that are unrelated to kidney disease that might need to be followed up on. And so as far as, um, as this is an article outlining best practices, the authors uh, list then at the, kind of at the end, um, essentials in pre and post test counseling. So they talk about how informed consent needs to be performed by a qualified genetic counselor. And they point out that this is a challenge because this isn't often something that's uh, readily available in nephrology clinics or transplant centers, but they, um, express that this is a critical component, again, as this type of testing increases over time and more and more people 
uh, undergo this testing to kind of invest upon, invest in, or try to figure out how to obtain. And then within the article, there are two really nice figures, flowcharts that outline the decision tree um, regarding, you know, how to test, confirming diagnosis, kind of a, a point by point um, flowchart of how to approach it. Um, so I'd recommend taking a look at that. Um, and then they have a really nice table. Uh, as well of the different genomic platforms and uh, sequencing kind of technologies that are available um, for kidney disease. So uh, they list the advantages and disadvantages of a number of them, particularly they break out on next generation sequencing or NGS approaches into targeted gene panels, whole exome sequencing and whole genome sequencing, um, and talk about the pros and cons of each. And then they also, um, uh, I won't go into the details because it's kind of beyond my non-nephrologist pay grade, but they go into the specific um, approaches for interpreting testing first, uh, most most common um, kidney diseases, genomic kidney diseases. So uh, ADPKD, Fabry, and Alport syndrome, uh, they have a nice uh, paragraph for each one of those. And that's uh, the last part of the review. So I thought, you know, I, I learned a lot. I think this is a really good and very concise summary of a lot of, um, that merged a lot of the clinical and the technical components of testing. Um, for genomic kidney disease and kind of highlighted a very um, seemingly growing and important um, issue as far as how we test uh, living donors prior to transplant. Um, and they had a number of really good kind of summary tables and flowcharts. Thanks, Scott, for a summary of a really, I think, impactful paper. I think anyone that is involved in live donation kidney or it probably involves in kidney because these mm -hmm. diseases, except for at least PKD, Fabrase probably too, affect the liver. But again, we we have significant situations. I think the bigger connection, and I don't know if they addressed it, is we do a lot of uh, paired donation. Uh, some of us are in NKR, some of us are in another consortia. Oftentimes, we're just putting these people in as as pairs, and and so I think you know I'm very careful now about asking, hey, uh, what's your story, and who who are you intending? If it's altruistic. I try to do a more detailed family history. I can tell you that we had a recent situation where we ordered the testing and found something completely unexpected and really now struggling to get information to inform the donor. We have to turn them down, but whether the mutation they have, which is unrelated to kidney disease, but related to another uh, long-term disabling disease and whether it's you know how to inform them where to get treatment, how to get tested, is another issue. So thanks for um, organizing that paper and getting our readers to take a look at it would be important, really critical. Yeah, I don't have any other comments. I think this is certainly we something we think about maybe a little less so in liver. Clearly, there. I mean, this is great to have a paper like this to kind of um, set the stage for and try to make this more standardized as possible. But it sounds like there are inherent challenges to it. So. But thanks, Scott. Do you have anything else to else to say, or do you want to just move on to the next uh, paper? Oh, I'm happy to move on. Okay. Cool. So the next paper is a little more in the um, translational uh, realm. So it's a paper first in corresponding authors, Olivia Martinez at Stanford. Uh, the title is Mutations in Latent Membrane Protein 1 of Epstein-Barr Virus are Associated with Increased Risk of post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder in children. Um, and this was um, part of a multi-center uh, consortia or, uh, study uh, as part of the CTOT-C06 uh, study. 
So um, as this audience is probably extremely well aware, one of the major complications of having lifelong immunosuppression for transplant patients is the risk of developing malignancy. In particular for pediatric populations, the, one of the main risks for malignancy is um, post-transplant lymphoproliferative disease or PTLD, uh, which is associated with Epstein-Barr virus positivity within the, the B cells, within the uh, individual. Um, and so this is a really um, long-standing and high-profile problem for, for pediatric um, patients who, are un, who um, receive immunosuppression and, and organ transplantation. So despite this, there are really not great or advancing tools for predicting or assessing who is at high risk or who will likely get PTLD. So as I, as the authors point out, the current uh, laboratory testing um, approach is to just do serial uh, qPCRs to monitor EBV viral load. And this is limited because you know, EBV in a known positive patient can persist um, in the uh, lymphoid compartment. So positive EBV test isn't really, doesn't necessarily correspond with PTLD. And as well, um, you know, simply having a negative um, EBV test does not rule out or is not, you know, predictive for future development of PTLD. And again, just uh, to highlight the main um, context is, you know, the largest risk is for EBV naive recipients, which again, tends to be more pediatric population uh, who receive receive EBV positive organs from EBV positive individuals. Um, and so these, uh, this combination of uh, cohort is typically monitored the closest. Um, so there's um, highlighted one nice uh, sentence from the authors. They said there's a real unmet need for the effective tools that can more accurately assess uh, the risk of developing EBV positive PTLD. That is the problem, but the, the work here uh, focuses on a really interesting set of prior work looking at the genotype of EBV. So they um, identified a group, uh, another group identified uh, two concurrent gain-of-function mutations, uh, G212S and S366T, that are in the cytoplasmic tail of this protein LMP1, which is an important EBV oncogene. Um, and so the previous work found kind of two things, one that it was prevalent in a number of B-cell lines from patients with um, PTLD, but not in kind of a parental laboratory strain. And then a little bit of mechanistic work was done that showed that these uh, EBV strains that have these uh, two mutations have more active um, ERK-MAPK uh, pathway signaling, and then also trans induce transcriptional changes through CFOX and AP1 in the host uh, cells. So again, evidence that these are potentially oncogenic mutations for EBV or might be driving oncogenesis. And so the hypothesis that led to this uh, specific study within the CTOTC is that there might be some um, uh, prevalent or, um, preference for um, EBV specific variants that have these two mutations um, in patients that have um, that get PTLD and this could be used as a predictive biomarker. So using the specific genotype of the EBV um, to see uh, to assess the risk of future development of uh, PTLD. So the CTOT6 cohort was, 944 pediatric solid organ patients um, initially um, from seven different sites, and they received a number of um, really all the different uh, solid organs, so liver, kidney, heart, small intestine, or multivisceral, and the endpoint was the development of EBV-positive PTLD. In this study, they used a nested one-to-two case control design um, to be able to compare patients that got PTLD with a ratio of two times as many controls that did not um, develop PTLD but were EBV positive. And then they uh, did the genotypic analysis of the EBV to assess 
whether these LMP1 mutations, uh, G212S or S366T, were present or were associated with um, development of PTLD. So um, of that initial cohort, 872 patients uh, actually received a transplant in the study, and they found that 34 of them uh, developed EBV-positive EBV PTLD. And in the meantime, um, I think consistent with known kind of risk for this, uh, is early after transplant. So the mean time to EV, EBV positivity was 144 days um, and to PTLD was 366. Um, and they did find that um, overall patients with PTLD uh, that in that PTLD positive group were more likely to have viral loads within the highest quartile um, from the whole study versus control. So there's some evidence that uh, the amount of EBV um, viral uh, load, it corresponds with PTLD development. And so then they did, um, I think, a really nice job of matching their controls to their cases based on, again, kind of a heterogeneous um, population of pediatric patients. They they matched them based on organ transplant type, the EBV status, donor and recipient um, at the time of transplant. And then they also um, made an effort to match um, the samples of the, the time post-transplant that they had the blood draw with the positive uh, PTLD cases. So as far as their findings, so they found that as is kind of known um, or suspected, I guess, that uh, donor EBV positive recipient EBV negative serostatus combination was the most um, prevalent um, in 41% of the um, 35 cases. This didn't quite reach uh, statistical significance um, due to the low number, but um, going along with what we kind of know um, about uh, increased risk for PTLD. Um, and then as far as uh, the, the impact of the genotype on um, PTLD development, so they found that the presence of both mutations together um, was highly associated with EBV-positive PTLD. Uh, it was present in 31 of the 32 cases, but it was also present in a large um, or a high percentage of the controls of patients that didn't get PTLD. So um, in 45 of 62 um, cases, the uh, EBV had both mutations as well. So what this shakes out as statistically is that it's, you know, it's higher in the patients that get PTLD and it gets an odd, gives an odd rate, odds ratio of 11.7, um, but the positive predictive value is very low. It's about 5%. And the kind of potentially clinical utility that might be useful um, and going forward is that it does have a really high negative predictive value. So 99.5% um, in their full cohort and 99.4% in the EBV positive cohort. So um, the last kind of analysis that they did was investigating whether um, these mutations had a potential um, uh, escape variant type uh, profile. So whether in patients that they had multiple blood draws where they had like an EBV positive before PTLD and then um, a blood draw when they, the patients developed PTLD to see if there was a change in the EBV genotype at these two um, sites in LMP1. And so they had 24 patients that uh, kind of fit this criteria with multiple blood draws. Um, and in 23 of them, both mutations um, were present at both, you know, at the, the first identification of e EBV positivity um, before the development of PTLD. And I think um, the one patient that didn't fit this, they had um, some evidence that the patient actually was infected with two different strains. So the point of that was that um, it looks like these mutations don't arise in vivo or de novo after infection. So it looks like people are getting, patients are getting infected with the, the strain and it's it's not mutating. So to summarize this really interesting study, I think 
you know, they showed very, in a, you know, very uh, well-designed study that both mutations are associated with an increased risk of developing EBV-positive PTLD, and that patients without mutations are highly unlikely to develop PTLD during, you know, the first early period post-transplant. You know, unfortunately, um, or fortunately or not unfortunately, the, the data is that, you know, it doesn't have a really strong positive breakout value, so it's not specific um, for, you know, developing PTLD, but it does have some potential clinical um, utility. And then I think they made a really good point towards the end where they said, you know, potentially additional, you know, a ton is known about EBV biology. And so potentially with the addition of other known um, mutations, we can continue to um, identify kind of a profile of EBV that could be more, have a more positive predictive value for developing PTLD. So um, I thought it was a really interesting, um, well, well done, well um, described study. Um, and yeah. Thanks again, Scott, for another nicely um, reviewed comment on this uh, considerable problem in children, but PTLD is also a problem in adults. So the frequency is probably much lower than children, obviously, because many of us develop our EVB somehow, maybe using each other's toothbrush or hanging around the dormitory bathrooms. I never could tell what it was. Um, but it had, did they talk to or did they consider how this might work, this sort of a strategy when the frequency was even lower? Because I, I suspect the positive predictive value, even though they did a case control, seemed quite low. And I wondered if that was due perhaps to the study design. If we drop the frequency even lower in a larger population, would still have predictable. Well, well with the AUC work and all that, I, I don't know if you, you're a lab person, you think about testing all the time. I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... I don't know. I guess I think you'd want the strongest signal in the beginning. So you'd want to have, you know, good proof where you can show an association before looking in a less, less prevalent population. But yeah. Yeah. I was also uh, wondering the clinical availability of this type of testing and Im implementation into practice. What do you, what do you think? I mean, I think as far as um, currently, it's not widely available as for, far as I, for future. Yeah. But for future, I think it'd be very easy type of testing to perform um, for sure. Gotcha. Interesting. Well, they, they need some more validation of studies, I think, probably before that. But uh, this was certainly a move towards more, uh, you know, personalizing therapy or personalizing an approach to a patient, uh, which is, is definitely needed in this area. All right. So, uh, Roz. All right. Uh, so, you get uh, started? yeah, sure. So, hepatitis uh, C is back in the news. Well, I'm going to start yeah. initially with race, and race oh, is right. always in the news. Okay, so, start um, with race then. But it's okay. Um, so Josh is alluding to the fact that I have two papers I'm going to talk about, and they both relate to the kidney donor um, risk index. So just to step back, I think that one of the things we're seeing now is, is the notion, and the first paper I'll talk about is the impacts of removing race from the calculation of the KDPI profile index by John Miller and colleagues at SRTR. And they use a term that I wasn't familiar with, which is called algorithmic bias. And, and algorithms are, you know, we use them for medical decision making, but importantly, it's it's sort of a systemic bias that's typically based on race or gender bias that are results in the algorithm implementation, and it fails to account for real differences between groups. And so a nice example is they show some interesting examples of using black race, which we know is 
not a biological term, but maybe is a surrogate for social or potentially genetic differences in donors. And so here they look to the impact of race in the KDRI. Now, I'll just for background, the kidney donor risk index was proposed by members of the Arbor Research Group at Michigan more than a decade ago, back in 2009. And they were trying to improve on the description of donor organs and kidney in particular from SCD standard criteria and E. CD extended criteria to a more continuous risk index profile to better quantify risk for the type of donor you were going to accept. And um, they utilized a cohort from the mid 90s to early 2000s, but it took really about another three or four years for this to be implemented in terms of each donor organ receiving that risk index that was in March of 2012. And then it didn't come as part of the kidney um, allocation system until December of 2014 when it was implemented. And here the, the risk index was standardized and became called the kidney donor profile index where it was standardized to the prior year's donors and the best 20% of organs based on KDPI were allocated to the 20% best recipients with best survival using the EPTS score, the expected post-transplant survival. And with that in mind and, and having that background, um, uh, this group has already noted two other papers um, and other journals that had indicated that if you removed race from the KDRI and used this standardized KDPI that there were improvements in, in, in the scores for Black donors. But this these papers really did not utilize the appropriate rolling prior years of donors. And so when you use a standardized year from way back when or from uh, an intermediary year, it's not as accurate. And so what they did is using SRTR data that they're able to, they uniquely recreated a series of cohorts that they had and, and, and more accurately looked at the standardization of KDPI, which is the term clinicians use and which is used in allocation to better reflect the actual donor population. So they had many cohorts, I won't go into it, but they revalidated the prior cohort of 1995 to 2005 in the prior published papers, both the two studies I'm referring to in the original Rao study in 2009 at University of Michigan. And they had a validation cohort for the following five years. And then some companion cohorts, including the most recent cohort uh, using January 2015, December 2021. And they also looked at the unused kidneys during that time. There were about 142,000 unused kidneys during that time period. I'll cut to the chase by saying that table one reflects um, removing black race, which showed that it had little impact on the predictive accuracy of KDPI and did not affect the risk discrimination. Um, so again, um, I think that's important because, you know, you want to be sure you're not making things worse by removing race, but the impacts on predictive accuracy and risk uh, decision-making were really limited. What they did note was when they looked at the higher risk KDPI greater than 85%, which, you know, for the non-kidney people, we actually have to get permission from patients to be willing to accept a higher risk age, older, whatever you want to call kidney. They, they looked at that term. And when they removed race, there was a significant result in blacklisted donors. Uh, it went from 31% uh, of donors being greater than 85% in the calculation down to 17%. And this was statistically significant. There was also a reflective increase in individuals that were non-black as donors, but smaller. It went from 15% up from 13%. 
And again, um, though black donors were considered at higher risk proportionally with greater than 80% KDPI, it was really, they, they really achieved more parity. So there is reason to remove this, this term within the KDPI, but it's important to recognize that when you shift in a media, you know, you have a hundred cards on a table and, you know, if you're going to shift some to the left side of the table, some have to move over to the other side. I couldn't think of an analogy. I hate using deck chairs because that's always like bad connotation. But again, if if you have a set pool of donors and some are going to get better in terms of the risk score, somebody else has got to get worse because they're all linked to a standardization within the middle. Interestingly, when they looked at the impact of this removal of race, um, not it, it's sort of interesting to note that in figure one, the absolute change in individual donors with a greater than uh, KDPI of 85% was most affected in the Deep South and the Southeast. In particular, Mississippi had the most uh, donors that the scores actually went better, got went down by 5.2%. Again, this was offset by small but uh, detectable changes in things like the Midwest and the far and the um, and the West Coast as well. Again, not super huge changes, but detectable changes enough. You know, in terms of of removing race, uh, in terms of the non-use issue, I would say that they looked at twenty one percent non-use rate in two thousand fifteen to two thousand twenty one. So definitely lower than it is now. And I'm using the word non-use because Josh will tell us later why we don't call it discard anymore. And interestingly, of those non-use kidneys back in that that cohort, about 33% were Black donors. And or, or those trans, I'm sorry, of used kidneys, 31% of that population were Black and 67 were non-Black, which is about what the proportions we see in the U.S. presently. And interestingly, when they used they removed race. It had really little limited impact on the terms of the non-use rate. And again, the non-use rates were again geographically affected with the biggest changes being in the Deep South, where the proportion of Black donors is significantly higher, just based on geography and geographic distribution of, of African Americans in this country. And um, again, sort of reflective even of the KDPI, very similar kind of uh, findings so again, you know, removing race in that terminology had no impact. I think we all thought it might. I think I was one believing that um, we were misattributing information and risk. And I think it does. So again, removing race is offset by the non-Black donors kind of moving up in the risk stratification. And similarly in non-use, it, it was it had the same impact. You know, it's not clear why in the original KDRI model that Black race had such a higher coefficient and whether this was really reflective of social issues, social issues in terms of the donors themselves being of uh, alternative quality because they had lack of access to health care, whether it represented a genetic interest in terms of ApoE1 mutation, which we're still waiting on the results and, and working in the Apollo study. Um, but this paper also suggests not only removing it for parity reasons, well, I mean, which should just be done, but also it brings into question how we're using KDRI and KDPI. And maybe it's time for the field to think about the kidney donor risk index alone and, and recalculating it, you know, really every year using appropriate adjustments that the SRTR does in the in the in the uh PSR reports that come out um, every six months to transplant centers. I, I don't know if you want to take yeah. questions now or you want me to go. No, to I, had a, I had a question, Roz, just and maybe this kind of goes along with the hepatitis. Well, I'll wait till the hepatitis C one because I have okay. a question about how this could 
the, both of these could be implemented and how quickly and the kind of the process. So maybe I'll just wait till you're. Sure. So the second paper is by Sutcliffe and colleagues, um, a group, I believe this might have been an AST uh, KPCOP project that looked at the longer term outcomes of hep C positive donors in the era of uh, direct activation, active uh, antiviral DAAs for hep C. And so, again, prior studies have shown that one year outcomes of these hep C positive kidneys are fine. They went back and did a retrospective analysis from 2015 to 2021 and had three categories, those that are NAT negative, antibody negative, those that had NAT that were NAT negative, antibody positive, indicating prior infection and or treatment or sustained remission or whatever you'd like to say. Perhaps there are those people that do well. And then NAT positive. And the reason they picked this cohort is to remind everyone that in December, of 2014, we were required by the OPTN to test all donors, both by serology and by NAT testing, again, to add an increased safety signal and use a more contemporary test, which is uh, using the NAT testing by PCR. And then in March 2015, that was when you had to do the required reporting. So it actually gave a few months for implementation. So they did not want to get, a, you know, prior studies have included these large cohorts, but a lot of this information wasn't obtained. And I think it had a lot of biases to it. Um, the three populations were compared um, by demographics shown in table one. And I could go through each of the many significant relationships, but would point out that really that these uh, NAT positive kidneys tend to be, um, uh, I would they, they're not actually necessarily younger, but um, they tend to be male kidney, they tend to be male, they tend to be in Caucasians. And there were a lot of other little associations that I think are important that you could go down in, in a lot of detail. I apologize. I mean, the donors were significantly younger, but it's, you know, 39 years versus 37 years. I think that you could build a clinical case that that's not exactly that significant. And then they looked at graph failure rates uh, in table two as well. But I think the kicker is really figure three, where they compare the three groups and show that by Kaplan-Meier survival estimates that graph failure risks, risks are really very similar and they're almost overlapping lines between the three groups. And I think that's the most important, that's one of the most important messages of this paper that longer term outcomes in this patient population are, are effective and effectively equal. So they also show some other findings that I thought were important. Again, the estimated GFR and NAT positive donors was 63 mils per minute per 1.73 meters squared. This is actually statistically significant better than the negative negative group, which was 61 and really um, not a ton different than the antibody positive group. But again, the NAT positives are younger. And uh, again, uh, their KDRIs were actually significantly higher because they are considered NAT positive. The DGF rates were actually, in fact, slight, significantly lower in the NAT positives. They were 23% compared to the negative group, which was 29%. And amazingly, this whole cohort had extremely low rejection rates at one year, ranging from 4.5%. The lowest was in the NAT positive group to the negative, negative, NAT negative, antibody negative group of 5.6%. I think those are really impressive and just really uh, almost shocking that they're that low for that those years. So, uh, you know, it's clear that 
that their data support the use of using these hepatitis C positive kidneys, and it aligns with the findings of, of lower risk of death and graft failure rate and other short-term studies, does affect the KDRI significantly. It's interesting that they noted that there was um, 48% non-use of these not positive kidneys during this period. They noted that in 2019, 42% of transplant centers was not accepting positive kidneys for negative patients, and then suggested the potential removal of, of this from the KDRI because it may be mislabeling. One issue maybe is that it's mislabeling and worsening the KDRI and making people nervous that it's maybe not a good quality kidney, yet their outcomes are really equivalent. You know, the limitations in OPTN data is they don't know who got DAA. They can't tell the timing. They can't tell the billing. They can't tell the longer term follow-up, say, at five years or 10 years. But I think that there, it's compelling data to say, you know, the KDRI is mislabeling these kidneys as bad. And the KDRI in 2009, using hepatitis then, when we didn't really, when DAA was being tested, you know, we didn't really have that opportunity. So again, is the re, is the youth, the non-use rate because of the KDRI or is the non-use rate because programs hadn't implemented the pharma, the pharmacoeconomic support of treating patients post-transplant, which I know was a big hurdle. And I think once, like our center had adopted it very, very quickly, but other centers that I've worked at, it took them a, a longer time to do this. Again, concern for the cost of these DAAs. Again, the argument long-term is, you know, you get somebody off dialysis, it's a money saver, no matter the cost of the DAA is outweigh, is really tiny compared to the cost of dialysis for the year. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> just to know, you, you kind of have to make an assumption and it's not a big assumption anymore that every all of these patients which are treated post-transplant now i mean maybe five years ago you could say there were people that may have fallen through the cracks or couldn't get coverage but now it's just so routine that these it makes you really believe that these outcomes are real and it makes a lot of sense and my, my question is i mean it to me it really it's almost a call for action to remove this from the KDRI. I mean, I it doesn't make any sense that that a Hep C positive organ anymore would be detrimental to the kidney graft outcome or to the patient's outcome. In fact, uh, we know that it, it it decreases their waitlist time. You can they can get more organs more quickly. So overall, survive and then post transplant survival is not different. In fact, maybe a little better, like we said, and or at least the graft function. Maybe, you know, at least, at least there's no detriment to taking a hep C nat positive organ post transplant. So I'm just curious with this. That's what I was asked about the, the race equation too, which, um, when that came out, New England Journal of Medicine, it, the GFR equations changed very quickly. I think within a year or so of that being published, uh, most centers now use the, um, uh, CKD Epi 2021 without race in it. And it was very quick. So do you think that these two, I mean, I think these are two really important papers. I totally um, agree with you. So and what do you, you think? Know, how do you result? Yeah. yeah. So how do you implement changes in the OPTN? So the, we know the OPTN now is, uh, you know, HRSA is making statements and wanting to make significant changes into the OPTN, which the contractor, as you know, is UNOS. And a lot of these changes would be mediated through UNOS. Mm -hmm. And in full disclosure, I was never involved in any of the UNOS committees. So their operations is something that I don't know a whole lot about. But certainly, 
These are kinds of things that the kidney committee would have to consider. The data could be provided to them by the SRTR. And I think it's on their radar to do the race removal, but I think they could easily remove the hep C and they could ask the other contractor of her SRTR to provide them the modeling and the data to show that, yes, the, the, the paper that I just presented, which was by a group of investigators using SRTR data, they need to get concurrence from the contractor. But I think it's it's kind of something we should be doing and, and you know, and as far as I'm concerned, effective immediately. But again, yeah, yeah. Um, this this is a major change in policy. It would require public feedback and that just sort of chugs along, you know, with a six month time point and all that. So I would say that as incoming president of AST, you have a unique platform, Dr. Levitsky, to mm-hmm. impact change and, and certainly... Yeah. Having the societies come together and provide this information to both HRSA and the OPTN, I think, is really critical to getting okay. it on the radar. If it's Thanks. not on the radar to work. Thanks for them. putting that on me. But yeah, <laughs> I, I just think um, everything's field has changed. You know, these is it's so. Become, I mean, I become like CMV or not even right. CMV. This is better right. than CMV. I this mean, is better can, than CMV and. I can tell you that I took care of patients that were hep C positive. What a disaster. And Uh, um, it was, you know, because we didn't have effective therapy and they were rejecting and you'd give them. I mean, I'm I know the old I I know the old data because I was there. Yeah. So, um, again, you know, the DAAs are great. You know, I think I'd like to know the data of how many programs are, you know, not accepting hep C positive organs in their space. I'm hoping it's. 10% 10% at this point, not 40. Again, we only they only had data from 2019. 2019 I think it'd be yeah. important that if we do this, that centers are prepared to have the pharmacoeconomic piece ready to go so they can get the prior sure. authorizations. Those are great comments. Okay, so we will finish with uh, an, an interesting viewpoint that I think uh, most or all of us should probably agree with that the term is addressing the term discard, which still today is being used routinely and when we talk about organs that are not transplanted. And the reason that this, so this viewpoint was put together by uh, members from the, generally members from the SRTR. And this was following, I was at this meeting last summer of the, the 2022 SRTR consensus conference entitled People Driven Transplant Metrics, which was held in Minneapolis. Uh, less than a year ago, last last July of 2022. And I think a full meeting report is going to come out of this. I think many, many of you have seen their, their, their very cool subway map of a, of a patient's journey along uh, transplant and all the different stakeholders and people involved in that journey. Uh, that's, that's something that came out of that meeting, but a lot of things were discussed about how to, how to uh, make the data collection better, what information and metrics are, are really important. Uh, an important thing about this meeting is that about a quarter of the t- uh, participants were were patients, family members, living donors, and deceased donor family members. So to have a significant say in uh, what information is collected and what terminology is being used and it was it was very clear from the conference that there was agreement on the the term discard being really a term that should no longer be used and if you look at table 1 there were some illustrative quotations from some of the um the uh comments from the meeting that 
basically the term discard was just not a term that the that the patient groups liked or or even the transplant community liked and sort of conjured uh, quote unquote conjured the image of just throwing it away and it sh- it should be noted that when an organ is not utilized for transplant it can be i don't know how, what percentage but it can be used to you know uh, in research research areas of transcriptomics and organ preservation technology testing but um also there's uh companies now developing there's a company now developing taking cells from uh uh from dis well, so I won't say discarded non-used organs and populating them into decellularized matrices to um build an organ to um such as a liver for for uh to support a patient like um in acute liver failure or use them as organs so the term discard is sort of suggests that it's not that it's going to be tossed and not even utilized and that really is sort of a disservice to the organ donor who who gave that organ and um also the family who is still alive that is honoring their loved one who who died and gave the organ and and um so some so but we have to have a term we have to have a term for the 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 non use of that for transplant and there's sort of they bring up this paper suggests um two terms or a few terms but i think they sort of thought non use or non utilization sort of organ non use rate would be a, at least a better term than organ discard there's also non utilization meaning like thoracic organs are not typically recovered until a recipient is located so there could be an organ potential organ but if there's no recipient located then that organ is not recovered but it's would be considered non-utilized in a way so um i totally agree with this these statements i think discard is just really should be a not used further in the in the um in publications in our our discussions it will take a lot to get that sort of out of people's lingo or you know language on a day by day basis because it's sort of a term that that is used often i was sort of thinking about a way to incorporate cuz to me non use this is my opinion non use and non utilization still suggests they're not even being used for something and i was thinking something more like non transplanted don't organ donors or you know not just focusing on not transplanted but the again like i said these organ donors that are not transplanted can be used for uh research and driving the field forward and have been so i i think this was a nice it was very short viewpoint but uh it's sort of a call to action to get rid of this term and i i just think that's it's an important thing especially when you're thinking about the community of uh organ donors when you use the term discard if having a negative connotation can have effects on people wanting to donate if they feel that their organ may be thrown in the trash as opposed to you as opposed to another term where they could be used for other reasons so i like i liked bringing this out front and center for sure well thanks josh i think um this was a message that resonated very loudly at the task 5 meeting in minneapolis where word it, the constituents included not only recipients but certainly donor families were included and that not knowing 
you know, you can ask to know where your donors are, where your donor organs went, and if those recipients are willing to do that, then sometimes they need. And I always used to tell my recipients, just make sure that's what you want, because you it may not be the happy story that there may be a lot of pain for this family and you may not be able to affect it. And likewise, for donor families, they don't want to maybe know who the recipient is, but they did want to hear that their organs, when they were, you know, thrown out in the trash or discarded, you know, discard means just throw it out in the trash. And again, there are opportunities that those organs could have had. I think some of the conversations we've had today may improve utilization of those organs and transplantation. And certainly the research aspects um, of those organs are also important, but it, it's a term that I'm, I force myself to use now, and then I explain what it means, and then I'm hoping in another year or two we'll all be saying non-use. Mm-hmm. Well, great podcast! Great. Wow, yeah, good, good stuff. Yeah. I think uh, really clinically impactful papers. Um, it'll be interesting to see, especially with your two, like in a, a year or two from now, is the DRI going to look different? Uh, I, I imagine it. It will. I, I hope so. I do too. You know. Yeah. And Scott, thanks for being our last yeah, fellow of the year, of the academic oh, year my. for AJT. You did a great job. And uh, thank you. next month, uh, Josh and I are solo. Oh, that's right. Okay. All right. We will have to tackle it on our own. Thank you, Scott. And uh, thanks, everybody. We will see you back in June. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.